When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Basically, like, everything I know I learned from YouTube. Like, the beauty of digital art is that, like, you could do something your way for, like, literally years before you discover like a button that'll do the exact same thing in like two seconds like (laughs) there's always room to learn something more you know welcome back to working i'm your host isaac butler and i'm your other host karen han karen Welcome aboard the USS Working. For those of you out there who didn't tune in last week, Karen has joined the team here on Working as our third host alongside me and June. And I have to say, uh, I am just so excited <laughs> for our listeners to get to hear you regularly on this show. Uh, for people who don't know you or your work, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Of course. I am a actual former Slate staffer, um, culture writer and screenwriter, um, I have written all over the place about movies and TV, written a little bit of TV, etc. I guess you'll get to know me better as the podcast progresses. But for right now, I'll say I'm so excited to be here on this podcast um, because I love June and Isaac so much, but didn't get to work with them that much while I was at Slate. So now I get to chat with them all the time, which is the dream. I know. It's true. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. (laughs) Uh, So drum roll, please. Who is your inaugural guest. My inaugural guest is the amazing Dami Lee. Um, She is a cartoonist um, and she does so many other things that we'll get into in our interview, but she is also one of my friends. So I'm very excited to be able to introduce her work to um, working listeners who might not be familiar with her. And for those of you who are familiar with her, provide a little further insight into her process. Amazing. So if I knew nothing about Dami Lee, like what should I know about her before listening to this interview? The big two things I would say that you should go look out for are, number one, um, the Webtoon series that she used to draw called As Per Usual, and also her book, Be Everything at Once, um, which was published in 2018. Her comics are usually autobiographical with like a little humorous twist, um, and I would highly recommend her work. Awesome. And I believe our Slate Plus listeners get a little something extra this week, right? Yeah. Um, so if you are a Slate Plus subscriber, you get to hear a little extra from my conversation with Dami. So in addition to doing a web series for Webtoon, which is a um, South Korean like web series publisher, basically, she also um, does a little bit of translating for them. So we talk about the process of doing that as well as what goes into basically choosing what she translates. 
Well, that's amazing. And I definitely would not ever want to miss that or any of our Slate Plus segments, which brings me once again to our Slate Plus pitch. Folks, you should go ahead and go to slate.com slash working plus right now if you're not a Slate Plus listener and sign up. Here's some things you get. First of all, it's only $1 for the first month. Then you get no ads on any Slate podcasts. You get unlimited reading on the Slate website. You get bonus segments of working. You get bonus episodes of of slow burn and of a big mood, little mood, and all sorts of other goodies on the podcast front. And you get to sleep well at night knowing you're supporting the work we do right here on working. That sounds like a great deal for just $1 for the first month. So go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up right now. Okay, enough out of me. Now on to Karen's interview with cartoonist Dami Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm so delighted to be joined by Dami Lee for my first episode of Working. And I'm so honored that you agreed to be a guest because I would say that you are probably one of the coolest people that I know. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> welcome to the show, Dami. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. What an intro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to start off with a pretty basic question, which is, I, I've talked to you a little bit about your work before, like as our friendship has progressed, but I think I have never asked you exactly like where that interest came from or like when you started cartooning. Yeah, um, I started basically uh, drawing for my college newspaper. And basically, my biggest motivator was that it paid $10 a strip. And so I was like, wow, getting paid for making art like that sounds interesting. And so uh, I started like my sophomore year, which was, gosh, I want to say like over 10 years ago, uh, (laughs) which is terrifying. But since then, I've been uploading pretty steadily onto like every internet platform there is basically so like every time I would make a comic I would directly upload it to like reddit tumblr facebook this was like even before instagram so imager Mm -hmm. like I would upload it to like every single platform and I got kind of like lucky um I would say like my first big break um was drawing comics for buzzfeed and that was like the first and probably one of the only times I've been paid to draw comics like as my full-time job and Mm -hmm. so that was uh actually what brought me to new york like i moved to new york to draw comics for buzzfeed (laughs) and had you had like interest in 
drawing or cartoons like prior to doing the college trip or was it sort of a something that you came across at, while you were doing that? I had always had an interest in art and like growing up I would take summer art camps like I would take classes and like mm-hmm. just take art all throughout high school and I was actually like involved in this sort of like program for teens that my local museum had and it was actually like through that program that kind of convinced me not to go to art school because <laughs> I was like so intimidated by all the other like super talented like cool artist types like in that program for teens <laughs> like uh it really like turned me off of going to art school for mm-hmm. some reason and so I was like I better play it safe like maybe I'll just major in something like very broad so I just like majored in comms like communications and political science and and so like while I was majoring in these like very normal <laughs> liberal arts majors like at college <laughs> I was like oh maybe I'll just do like art on the side like for fun and I think that kind of set the tone for the rest of my career maybe because like I have always had a full-time job or like some sort of office job while doing the comics thing on the side and like Mm -hmm. as much as I would I've always like liked the idea of doing art full-time it also like scares me because it's so difficult you know to like make a living off of that and like having doing comics on the side is like very easy to do you know it's like a very like low effort uh low stakes kind of thing that I think has given me like more comfort um like having that on the side so that's kind of um just where my interests have always lied Mm -hmm. i assume you mean like low effort in comparison to i I don't know i guess like some (laughs) kind of heavier job where because i feel like right thinking about the job of making cartoons i always feel like it's it's a very high bar to have to jump like you have to have the idea you have to have the skill necessary to pull it off Right. I mean, like, definitely not to disparage, like, the work of, like, amazing cartoonists (laughs) and, like, illustrators out there. But, like, a lot of people, I think, um, like, a lot of my followers tend to be young children. And they're always like, hey, like, how do I get started making comics? And I always tell them it's, like, really, really easy. Like, all you need, like, at the core is, uh, like, pen and paper, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just, like, so easy to get into. And people always think that it's a lot harder than it actually is and so yeah I would say it's like there's a pretty low barrier to entry I guess the the tough part then is like achieving some kind of success or notoriety right right like getting an audience um getting your work to like resonate with people like I think that's the harder part early on in your career like how did you kind of tackle that problem or do you feel like it's gotten easier um with time to figure out what will resonate with people Yeah, I mean, that was one of the toughest parts of starting out is building that audience because like you can upload comics for years and like not build up any sort of following, which I think is okay. like because for me, drawing comics has always been like a personal thing to document like whatever is happening in my life. Like I really started uploading comics when I moved to Korea after college. So I mostly grew up in the States, but I was born in Korea and I returned there like after college. And so comics and like uploading them to my personal blog was kind of like a way for me to keep in touch with friends back home. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, like I've always liked thinking of doing comics as a personal thing. And so 
like there's no problem if you are making these comics and uploading them and like no one else is reading them except for your friends like I don't think there's an issue there but if your goal is to build some kind of like brand or following then like yeah it can be really hard and like time consuming to build up an audience but like it definitely takes time I would say. I wanted to circle back to one thing that you were saying about the barrier to entry being like low as as far as getting into comics goes, where you just need like a pen and paper. I'm curious about your journey with mediums as well. Um, for like, for instance, with the college strip, were you were you drawing with pen and paper? Because I think <laughs> I would I I don't know obviously, but I would say that most of your art right now is digital. Yeah, like I mainly started out with pen and paper, and like not even like the good kind of artist pens it was like literally a ballpoint (laughs) pen and like my art editor at the time he like told me about like uh, was is it like monami pens or something like there's like a very specific type of pen that is like really good for drawing and he told me about it I was like wow this is like a whole new world and I would just like scan it in like probably at the library and use my pirated copy of photoshop to like draw or like color it in you know uh, very rough coloring and basically like everything I know I learned from YouTube um, like there are just so many tutorials really good tutorials out there on like how to get into digital art mm-hmm. like the beauty of digital art is that like you could do something your way for like literally years before you discover like a button that'll do the exact same thing in like two seconds like (laughs) there's always room to learn something more you know and jumping off of that what is your like literal process right now like what tools are you using and also is there a shortcut that is your favorite yeah like I have been using the Wacom digital tablets it's the kind that you connect to your computer like via bluetooth and it's not the one where you like draw directly on the screen I know a lot of people or like a lot of professional artists like to use that kind of tablet. But for me, like I'm so used to like the one that's detached from the screen. And I use Clip Studio, which is like a Japanese program that is like maybe I always like to say it's like literally the most powerful program in the world. Like it can do everything. (laughs) Like it has like 3D, like it's got like this cool asset library where like people upload brushes and backgrounds and stuff. It's amazing. And it's also like super cheap compared to other like subscription-based software so I think it's like $50 but it goes on sale a lot so mm-hmm. yeah it's an amazing software yeah I, I got highly it on recommend. sale <laughs> yeah definitely do that <laughs> I have to say though I when I have looked at Clip Studio I haven't used it um, in any serious extent but just looking at it it's so overwhelming because there's so much right. that you can do I assume that the way that you got used to it was partially just through using it repeatedly and also mm-hmm. as you're saying like the YouTube tutorials Yeah, I mean, just clicking around and, like, figuring out what button does what. Um, But the YouTube tutorials have been, like, such a big part of, like, learning. Like, it's how I learned to do, like, animating and, like, making Instagram face filters. And uh, even, like, I don't know, figuring out how to fix my bathtub drain. You know, it's like YouTube is just, like, (laughs) incredible for, like, everything. (laughs) And I guess this is sort of a tangent from cartooning, but I'm so enamored of all the Instagram face filters that you've done. They're all so fun and creative. Some of them you've done in collaboration with other people, but other ones I would say are just kind of off the top of your head for your own personal enjoyment. How did you start getting into making those and roughly what is the process of making them? 
I found out about them back when I was a tech reporter at The Verge, and it mm-hmm. was such a new like platform where it was open to people of like all different skill levels, and it really attracted me because it doesn't require like any sort of coding knowledge. Uh, you could make it through this software created by Facebook called Spark AR. And they just make the process like so simple and easy. And like there's a really supportive like community on Facebook um, where like people are just helping each other out like to teach them how to make face filters. And I like kind of started making them like uh, jokes. You even got to model one of them for me. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) And it's um, my pleasure, truly. I I loved it. And I really want to like make more. Um, I was like really lucky enough to uh, work with like really cool brands to make Instagram filters for them. And so I made one for Nickelodeon, which is like um, the painty, the pirate filter, which he's like in the intro of the SpongeBob theme song. He's like, yeah, the pirate that's like, are you ready, kids? Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, captain. I can't hear you. Aye, aye, captain. Oh. And um, yeah, like I got really lucky with that. Um, I I made the filter, like I had the idea. And so I just like cold emailed it to their social media manager. Like I found him on LinkedIn and I just, I kind of just like guessed his email. I was like, first name dot last name at (laughs) nick.com. And so I emailed it to him and actually I didn't hear from him for maybe like over a month. And so I was like, you know, whatever, like it was a shot. And then he ended up getting back to me and he was like, yeah, we actually really like this. And I was like, great. And so, yeah, that's how that came about. And I think I might want to like try to apply that model to more filters. Cold emailing, I think, is one of the most like nerve wracking things that you have to do as a freelancer or someone who is in a more creative field. Even just like for me as a like freelancing as a journalist, having to cold email Mm -hmm. editors is like the worst thing in the world. How often do you find yourself having to do that like as a cartoonist? I know. So like I actually ended up going freelance two weeks before the pandemic. And it Mm -hmm. was like a crazy time because I wasn't really sure how to jump into like the freelance life as an artist. Like I didn't know if I wanted to do like editorial illustrations or try to work on another book. Like it's very open ended. So I was like trying to email art directors (laughs) with my portfolio, but also acknowledging that it was like the start of the pandemic. So I would be like, hey, Um, I hope you are doing well during this unprecedented time. Here's my portfolio. (laughs) And, you know, of course, I didn't hear anything back. Um, So, like, I think I could have done more with emailing, cold emailing, like, more people. Um, I've heard from people who are like, you know, you got to just send these emails out, like, hundreds of emails at a time. And maybe you'll get, like, one or two back. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a good strategy. And like, you really do have to like be persistent if you actually want to like build some sort of relationship with people. Yeah. We'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Dami Lee after this. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, listeners, we want to hear from you, whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, share your own creative triumphs or or failures, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. We are the last people on earth who still like voicemail, so please give us a call. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Karen's conversation with Dami Lee. So we have to talk about your book, which is called um, Be Everything at Once, um, which was published in 2018. And it's so wonderful. It's um, these four panel comics that are, I would say, mostly autobiographical. Um, I'm curious, number one, on like a sort of broader note, because a lot of the comics that you do are autobiographical as well. Um, You mentioned previously that initially you started doing this mainly so that you would have a way to keep connecting with your friends and your family. Uh, Was that kind of the only reason that you decided to write and work about yourself? Or was there some kind of bigger um, impetus for making autobiographical comics? Yeah, like I wish I was the kind of writer that could create like these amazing fictional worlds and characters. But unfortunately, I only know how to write about myself. And so the book came about because I was really wanting to share like my family's like experience, like immigrating to America from Korea. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't really heard a lot of stories about like my personal experience, which is moving back to Korea, like as an adult, like and what that's like from the perspective of a Korean American. And Mm -hmm. I think like one of the reasons why I really wanted to do the book also personally was because I was trying to like, prove myself to my parents who were really worried about (laughs) me quitting my perfectly normal job in Korea to like move to America to become a cartoonist, Mm -hmm. which sounds like ridiculous when you say it out loud. But I was like, (laughs) maybe if I can like make something of myself and like make a book, like they won't be so worried about me like making it out here. Mm-hmm. That was one of the main like struggles of my life, I think, um, just like being so far away from my family and like trying to prove to them that I'm OK out here and like they don't need to worry. And um, it is still one of the main like things about my wi- about my life that I wish I could change is that like I wish I could be closer to my family. And like mm-hmm. I wish it wasn't so hard to like have have it all, you know, like <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. having the career that I want, but also like being, you know, like near my family, you know. Yeah. 
Um, you mentioned that it's part of the reason that of for doing the book was to try to make them less worried about your career shift. Are they less worried now? Did it work? I think so. <laughs> they still kind of are like not really sure what I do. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, with age, I think comes a lot more reassurance and also. Um, like I got married in the last year and I think that yay (laughs) and yeah like I feel more confident in myself and like the direction the general direction like you know my life has been heading and like Mm -hmm. my dad also just retired and so I think everyone is kind of settling into the twilight years of their lives Um, I'm also curious, uh, just I guess this is on a pretty technical level, what was the process of getting the book, like of actually publishing it, of getting it through? I have to say that I know that I've been super lucky. I actually had an agent, my agent reached out to me after seeing one of my comics on Reddit. And so Mm -hmm. like uploading my comics to social media has like definitely paid off and that it got me like my wonderful agent. And we started working on a proposal together where it was originally a different concept. So Mm -hmm. the comic that I had originally uploaded to Reddit was, I think it was the, you know, that tweet about that outcast song where it's like, I'm sorry, Miss Jackson, I am four eels. (laughs) Never meant to make your mother cry. I am several fish and not a guy. And so I drew that as a comic and the agent really liked it. And she was like, what if we created a proposal of a book and it's about like misheard lyrics? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, cool, great. And so I made a couple of different comics like illustrating this phenomenon of like misheard lyrics. And one of them was that Taylor Swift song, Blank Space, where everyone thinks she's talking about... (laughs) Starbucks lovers, but I think it's talking about like ex-lovers, got along like yeah. ex-lovers. And so I drew, like that was one of the comics and we sent it out to a couple of different publishers, but nobody was really interested in it except for Chronicle. And the editor there was like, actually, instead of this concept, like, why don't we just focus on your life? And I was like, great, mm-hmm. that's all I know. So <laughs> um, that's how we kind of got the book. <laughs> And I also want to talk about your uh, webtoon as per usual. Um, So if I'm correct, you started drawing it around 2016 and just ended it um, this year. Isn't that right? Yeah. The webtoon came about, (laughs) funny story, but like, (laughs) I don't know if I want to put BuzzFeed on blast. Maybe I do. But I, I mean, I've already told this story, I think, like. Basically, I was hired at BuzzFeed from Korea, and Mm -hmm. it was part of a fellowship where after three months, um, the fellows, there were three of us, we were supposed to be hired on full time. And guess what happens at the end of the fellowship? Um, They tell us that (laughs) there is a hiring freeze and they can't hire us. They can't hire any of us full time. And so they kind of like dragged it out for months, um, kind of like stringing us along, being like, Maybe at the end of this month, like, things will change. And, of course, it didn't. And so I had, like, moved to New York, like, for this job that they had told us would be, like, a guaranteed full-time position. And at the end of that, I was basically, like, alone in America, like, jobless. And so Webtoon came about, like, at literally, like, the perfect time for me. Like, they saved me because I 
it was that time when I reached out to them. Another like mm-hmm. cold pitching an editor and being like, yeah. hey, I have this comic idea. Like, would you be into it? And it was really like just like the perfect time and place because Webtoon, which is like a very big Korean comics platform, Mm-hmm. They were just launching in America and, and like we're looking for new comics at that time. And so it was just like such good timing. And I'm like really so grateful to them for like taking a chance on me and like supporting my art. And it has been like like an incredible five years, but it was also like really hard <laughs> and stressful because yeah. I was making two comics a week for them while working my full time job. And I would come home after work and just start drawing and like draw for like several hours and like send it to them before the deadline. And I think the deadline was really good for me because it kept me consistent and like forced me to come up with new comic ideas. But at the same time, I was also like super burned out. And finally, like after five years, we came to like a mutual agreement to like kind of end the series And so Mm -hmm. it's been really nice, like, getting to take a break from that. But I'm also, I don't know, I haven't really been doing much, like, since the end of that. (laughs) Like, now that I don't have deadlines to, like, keep me on track. But you mentioned, like, one of the pressures of having to do this comic twice a week was, like, having to come up with these ideas. Um, What is the process of coming up with ideas? And I'm also curious, like, how many times you would have an idea, or if this happened at all, if if you'd have an idea, start drawing it, and then realize that it, it wasn't working. I mean, the broad answer to that is, like, your daily life, right? So, mm-hmm. like, conversations I have with friends and, like, whatever happened to me at work and stuff. And so... A lot of my comics in the beginning were about like my new life in New York and like adjusting to life back in America and juggling like a full time job and like my personal like creative hobbies and stuff like that. And so that's why it was so hard during the pandemic because there was nothing going on and like nothing new was happening and it really wasn't like the mood to be mm-hmm. like making jokes and stuff. And so I really deliberated on like continuing to make comics and uploading them because it just didn't feel right. Yeah. Like I would go to my husband and poke him and be like, hey, do something funny. Like, <laughs> just, like get me something to write about. And it's, get me pictures um, of Spider-Man vibe. Get me pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the comics have naturally shifted towards you know, like whatever's happening in my life. And so when my husband and I like started dating, like I would naturally want to like draw relationship comics. And like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of cartoonists and artists like go through the same thing where I know a lot of artists who are like pregnant, who are drawing like pregnancy journeys and like um, shifting to comics about their children. And I think that's like a really cool, like natural evolution. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I would love for more things to happen to me so that I can continue to draw them. <laughs> Was there ever any discussion, like, with the people in your life that you portray in your comics, whether or not, like, did you ask them for permission? Yeah, like, I would draw about my family a lot. And a lot of times my mom would see it and she would be like, how dare you? Like, kind of in a joking <laughs> really? way, but also right. seriously. She would joke. She's like, hey, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> and I'm like, no. What? <laughs> but... I know. No, she's joking, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I naturally I like to draw <laughs> about the people in my life. And um, mm-hmm. there are some things that I would like to draw about, but 
out of the interest of privacy and courtesy that I don't. So Mm -hmm. you've also done um, illustrations and stuff for uh, The New Yorker, The Los Angeles Times, Cosmopolitan, Dig Ins or Kensington's. Um, I'm curious (laughs) how many of those came about like because you were pitching these people or how many of these people approached you because they were familiar with your work and wanted you to do something for them? Yeah, I think most of them have been me like pitching the editors. Um, There Mm -hmm. have been a handful of times where the brands have like approached me, but for the most part, it's me like reaching out to editors. And The New Yorker actually has like a really cool process where their cartoon editor, um, Emma Allen, is like very accessible to the, the artists where I think before the pandemic, like she would hold like open office hours for people to come in every week and um, she would personally like go over your pitches and comic ideas. And so Mm -hmm. like that was really cool to get to go in and talk to her and like tell her about my ideas and we would sort of like shape them together. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so most of them were like me going up to the editors. Another thing that I want to ask about is um, I'm not sure the origin of it, which is why I bring it up, but I feel like your work in particular has become very associated with the image of uh, egg. <laughs> yes. That's right. And I wanted to ask how that happened and what the significance is. Yeah, it was basically me trying to come up with a character that would be instantly recognizable, like sort of how a lot of cartoon characters would wear the same outfit. Um, for every episode, like Doug or like, you know, mm-hmm. like every cartoon character um, in history. And so <laughs> I was like, I I like eggs. I think they're cute. I'll, I'll put it on this shirt. People just ran with it. And now every time there's some sort of like egg related meme, they always send it to me. And for <laughs> that, I am grateful. <laughs> That's so wonderful that you can get something that's so, I, I, I guess, like fairly ubiquitous, just associated with you specifically. <laughs> I wish, you know, what would be really cool is if like a bougie egg company like were to sponsor mm-hmm. me or like, you know, yeah. there's like expensive eggs from like, uh, like a humane farm or something. If they were to like send me expensive some eggs, like I would eggs. love that. <laughs> And so, as you mentioned, I think towards the beginning of the interview, you are now currently freelancing. Uh, what kind of things, I guess, do you want to work on in the future? Are you or are you working on um, right now? I have been lucky enough to get asked to participate in like kind of a lot of different projects. Like there is one called Rewriting Extinction, and it's. Uh, it's a project that aims to pair up like activists and celebrities with comic creators to raise awareness mm-hmm. and raise money for like environmental charities. And so I got to contribute a couple comics for that. And That's awesome. I also worked on uh, another like I-, I worked on like a community building project with a bunch of like Korean American artists when we created something called the Tong portfolio. Tong is kind of mm-hmm. like like a feeling of mutual goodwill <laughs> and kind of like between like love and like respect and like a bunch of all these like mm-hmm. other feel good <laughs> feelings. And so I, I created like a print of this really cute little dog like sitting in this Korean market and it looks like he's selling vegetables. And it's based <laughs> on like this photo that I saw um, on Twitter. 
And that print is going to go on sale at the end of this fall to raise money for a bunch of like AAPI um, charities. And so, yeah, I'm really glad I got to work in a bunch of projects like that. And as for personal work, I am kind of like wrestling with myself to try Mm -hmm. to force myself to like work on a second book. And I think it would... I would like to go back and like focus on that period in my life when I was living in Korea after college mm-hmm. and sort of trying to jump through all these hoops to like get a job and like trying to market myself as like like a normal Korean person when on the inside I'm like <laughs> this Korean American who is kind of like flailing around and like really confused about everything. So uh, yeah, I'm just kind of like working through that. <laughs> That's amazing. I can't wait to read it whenever it does come out because I feel like... The, the, it is something that's sort of under discussed. Like I remember like when I was mm-hmm. a kid and would go to Korea to visit my family, like even just the way that you dress is different as a Korean American to like Koreans. Mm-hmm. People can instantly tell. Yeah. Yeah. E- even if it has nothing to do with like how good your Korean language skills are, they already know. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so wonderful to talk with you about your process and your work. Um, let the listeners know where they can find you if they are interested in your work. Thanks so much for having me. Um, People can check me out on Instagram. My handle is Dami underscore Lee. Karen, I loved this conversation. I was unfamiliar with Dami's work before now, but it was a real joy to discover both her cartoons and her process through listening to the two of you talk. And I really felt a kinship with, as I'm sure you did, all of her joys, struggles, and confusions as a freelancer. But before we get to any of that, can you tell us a bit about this Instagram filter thing that she does? Because I am, I hate to say this, not on the gram. Well, you are on Twitter, and uh, because you are, you may have seen some pictures of your mutuals um, that are jazzed up somehow, whether it's, like, little freckles or, like, angel wings on the back, like, stuff that's generated, like, in, like, AR, I guess, basically. And her the filters that she makes are so good, um, mostly because they're all, like, very funny and in-depth. I don't know if you've ever seen that meme. It's, like, an Antiques Roadshow screen cap of this very haunted-looking doll, and the caption is, like, Oi, Mr. Yumi Dad doll! And she made one that was, like, the little hair and, um, like, bib that the doll was wearing with a little caption on the bottom, so, like, that was a filter that she made she's also Amazing. done like one off of that like Jamiroquai video where the walls are going in and out in the background so she does a lot of those filters they're all really funny and cute and if you ever get on instagram i highly recommend them maybe i'll get on instagram just for that maybe i'll just <laughs> do filters all the time i was really struck by something she said early on about you know being turned off by the art school kids and deciding to major in you know normie liberal art stuff like poli sci and have a Mm -hmm. day job while doing her art for fun and of course that fun stuff has turned into a real career it's a good reminder that you don't have to travel the established paths just because they're there like something in the world was telling her that the art major and full-time art life was just not the right path for her 
Yeah, and I think the complication is that, especially now, I think a lot of the quote-unquote established paths that people were following, like when these careers were still pretty nascent, like don't exist anymore. Just thinking about like my path into culture criticism, where I feel like if you off the top of your head were going to say this is the career progression, it'd probably be like get an English or film major and then like go internet a newspaper or something. But it's like those things kind of aren't really possible anymore in the same way or just because so many other paths exist especially with the internet everything has really opened up the field is so much bigger which is good in so much as it gives more people the opportunity to do the things that they want to do but also can be tough because it means the gateways are so much less obvious like Mm -hmm. it's less obvious where to go or what to do and i honestly do feel like that's true of every creative field Yeah, you know, I was having coffee with a student of mine who was talking about, you know, she's a senior and she wants to pursue directing Mm -hmm. the stage, which, as you know, I was sort of my full time concern for a while, although it isn't anymore. And she was like, it just seems like there like aren't a lot of career development things out there for young directors. I was like, it seems that way. Because there aren't. You are, in (laughs) fact, correct. I mean, there's actually a few more than there were when I was starting out. But just like Mm -hmm. those paths have been sort of roughed over. It's like you have to sort of figure your own thing out. Yeah. And I do think, you know, that that has resulted in something interesting aesthetically, which is that Mm -hmm. certain kind of naivete to her approach as she talks about it. Right. She started with a ballpoint pen. She learned how to do a lot of her stuff from YouTube. Do you feel like that has reflected in her aesthetic and style? I'm not necessarily sure if it's a reflection, but I definitely think that her style is very distinctive. Like, I don't think anyone else's cartoons look like hers at least like 100%, like where if I looked at her work, I wouldn't say like, oh, this looks like manga or oh, this looks like Garfield or whatever, or oh, this looks like Rick and Morty, which I think is like the dominant animation style right now. Why like, does everything look like Rick and Morty right now? I don't know. I'm not oh. happy about it, but okay. that's a different conversation. Right, right. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I love to complain about things, um, but the point being like Dami's work is so unique. I feel like that maybe is a product of the fact that like you don't learn like this is how you draw x and this is how you draw x like it's it's autobiographical comics so there is like a certain degree to which she obeys like the laws of realism but like her facial the facial expressions that she draws and everything that she does it's very unique to her like i don't think i would ever see something of hers and not go oh that's a dummy illustration right right i also got to say i love that she made a book in part to reassure her parents. (laughs) (laughs) It's really proof that the artistic impulse, it could just come from anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think... I I feel this a lot, especially with like my peers in media where it's like impossible to describe your job to your parents or older relatives in a way that will make them think that it is actually a job. But a book is something that's easily understandable by everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can just hold it up at Thanksgiving and be like, I did this. This this is the physical proof of the fact that I did a job. (laughs) Totally. Totally. I also want to point out for our listeners, because this is an oral, A-U-R-A-L medium, that uh, Isaac held up a physical copy of his book to illustrate his point while <laughs> we were true. talking about That's true. This. Well, we record this in my bedroom and my wife is reading the galley of it right now. Mm. So, so it's right here. Like, it's right here behind me. Um, I was like, oh, that's very handy, huh? Yeah, it's like right, a anyway. Jay Sherman carrying around his Pulitzer Prize around his neck in the in the critic. In fairness, I am working on a book currently, yeah. and when it comes out, I will just always have it. And yeah, of course, you know, she writes the book to reassure her mom, but she also <laughs> gets notes from her mom on her work. My mom listens to this show. Hi, mom. <laughs> 
Hi, Isaac's mom. And uh, I love hearing from her with her thoughts on the show. They're often laugh out loud funny. Sometimes it's just like a cryptic text that relates to something the guest said on Monday or Tuesday that she really enjoyed or or she has actual thoughts on the work that we do that are actually really, really helpful. Uh, does your mom read your work? Do you do you want her to <laughs> or do you send her? You know, you've been doing some writing for TV. Does she watch your, your TV work or do you, do you want her to have anything to do with it or do you hide it secretly from her? I don't hide it. I feel like because one of the big um, things that helped me, especially in my early career as a culture writer, was like tweeting out the things I had written so people would click on them and go to them. So it's not like they're hidden away anywhere. I guess I'm sort of ambivalent about whether I want her to read it or not, where it's like, I think it. this is maybe a depressing thing to say, but I think it's true of everyone who's been in media where it's like, you're not 100% proud of 100% of the things that you've written and put out there. Which is why I say I'm kind of ambivalent about it. But I, she does read my work. Um, she gets excited when, like, for example, like the first time I got published in the New York Times, she was like, oh, my God. And then, like, put it on her blog. Um, and, like, the big stuff, she will, like, be like, I sent this to my friends or whatever. Um, Amazing. It's more anxiety-inducing for me, like, when my partner's mom, for instance, she'll be like, oh, like, have you watched this? And he'll go, oh, like, Karen actually wrote about it. And she'll be like, oh, you have to send me that piece. And it's like, no, you don't You don't have to read it. It's fine. Like, right. It's fine. It's fine. Like, nobody has to read this. <laughs> so Nobody um, has to read anything. Yeah, but on the level, like, it is always, like, really touching that people that are in your immediate life, like, want to be apprised of your work and will read it. So all in all, thank you to my mom and also my partner's mom. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, you don't always feel 100% great about 100% of the things Mm -hmm. you write as a freelancer, which I think actually connects to something she talked about in the interview, which is the usefulness and cursedness of deadlines, right? It's (laughs) really helpful to have to deliver a comic twice a week, which I must say, even as not a cartoonist, sounds incredibly daunting. But to do that, you like really have to produce. And that forces you to be creative in a certain way, right? It's that mm-hmm. it, it's not that it's perfect. It's that it's done. <laughs> yeah. And, and it also had a real impact on her work because her work had to be kind of observational and about the mundane details of life, because that's the only way you're going to get enough stuff to meet those kinds of deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to ask, how do you relate to deadlines? Do you need them to get work done? Do you chafe against them? Do they stress you out? How do, how, how do you deal with them? I think number one and number three, where I like having them because I like having structure, but also they do stress me out because they are deadlines, ultimately. I Generally, though, I will say sort of in door number one, I feel like I'm pretty good with deadlines. I think I've only missed a deadline twice in my life. Um, and th- having them is very useful because it's like it's got to get done. And even if it, it helps you not procrastinate, I think, mm-hmm. at least for me. Yeah, yeah. I often find that the deadline actually creates the inspiration. Like, even if mm-hmm. I'm upset about the deadline or something, it's like a, <laughs> a week before there's a part of your brain, or two days before, there's just a part of your brain that, like, starts working on it even when you aren't thinking about it because yeah. you got to, like, get in there and do yeah, it. Yeah, it's, you have to do this. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, the tightest deadlines I've ever had are um, on days when I'm writing about someone who's just died for Slate. Oh, it's usually like yeah. a four-hour turnaround on like a 1,500-word piece. And I'm always surprised that like, actually that's some of the stuff that I think are, has gone really great because you just wow. like, you can't overthink it. It's like you have one clear idea and mm-hmm. you have to just go with it. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. I admire that a lot, but I will say I don't think that's been my experience with deadlines. It's just helpful to get it done. But in terms of feeling like I produce the best material, I have no control over that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, since you brought it up, I have to ask about this because this is something okay. that I know listeners of working are going to be curious about, which <laughs> has to do with pitching people and particularly cold emailing people you don't know to try yeah. to get them interested in working with you. You said you hate it. I hate it too. Almost every <laughs> freelancer I know hates it. My experience of you having known you for years is that you are really good at it. You were really good at pitching. You have, you have, you've built a career very quickly for yourself in a number of different outlets that must have involved getting over that hatred to cold mm-hmm. email a lot of people. So asking for a friend who is me <laughs> and many of our <laughs> listeners, share your secrets with us. How do you get beyond that? How do you leap over that hurdle and just embrace the discomfort of cold emailing and pitching people? I think... The best way to think about it is to remember when you're a kid and you're meeting your friend's parents and acting in the way that you did then to the editors that you're cold pitching, where it's like you just have to be polite and good and put your best face forward, especially with, I think, uh, freelance culture writing or writing of any kind when you're pitching that. It's best to try to keep your idea to like one paragraph (laughs) or keep it short. I know like because one of the big things um, that I know like my editor friends don't like where it's like they'll send a pitch, but it's a pitch that has the entire piece attached to it. Unless they ask for it, don't do that. Basically, just try to use your common sense and think of like, if you were an editor, what would you want to get in your inbox? If you were a parent, what would you want this little child to act like to you when you were meeting them? (laughs) Is that helpful at all? That is now I am that parent. I'm not an editor, but now I am that parent, (laughs) right? With my kids. Um, I will also say, if I can add one more piece of advice, Mm -hmm. Slate has a really great, uh, we'll put it on the show page, a really great page that just says how to pitch Slate on it. Mm -hmm. And the advice they give for that is, great for pitches writ large it'll also tell you yeah. which editor to pitch at slate which people ask me about a lot and i'm always like just go there it says it right there but yeah. also its guide to what a good pitch looks like is i think really really helpful and clear and generously written i will say to sort of jump off the back of that a lot of websites actually will like have that kind of page somewhere not every website but a lot of them will have like a guideline to pitching x website and what they're actually looking for I know like social media is kind of a curse, but it honestly is really helpful. Like if you go and like find the editor's accounts, like in most or in some cases, at least they will be like, I'm looking for pitches on X. Um, We our pay rate is X and um, you can email me at X email address. Um, So as long as you go and like sort of look around a little bit, you'll usually find something that will help you send make your pitch like as appealing as possible to the editor that you want to talk to. That's great. And, you know, we should also say at the end of the day, yeah, it feels really uncomfortable. There's no two ways about it. It feels yeah. weird to just write a stranger out of the blue and be like, give me money to write for you or whatever. The, yeah. It might not be writing, whatever the freelance thing is. And you just have to kind of figure out a way to psych yourself out and get over it. Yeah. Oh, I have one more piece of advice. You are doing a job for them is kind of the bottom line where I, there are like some horror stories out there where it's like, this editor rejected my pitch. So I copy edited their email and sent it back to them. It's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Be professional. Be professional. (laughs) Like that won't endear you to anybody. That's definitely true. Yeah. 
Well, that's our show for this week. And if you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And now let me tell you about how awesome a Slate Plus membership is one more time. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and How to Do It, and it is only $1 for your first month. Go to Slate.com slash Working Plus to sign up today. Thanks to this week's guest, Dami Lee, and thanks as ever to our magnificent producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with Isaac's conversation with legendary documentary filmmaker, Stanley Nelson. Until then, get back to work! <laughs>